ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In seven years' time, the Australian government is targeting that 82% of all electricity in the grid is generated by renewables. A big part of that plan is an increase in offshore wind farms. Now, massive offshore wind farms are a common sight off the coast in Europe. And at night, the ocean lights up with small cities of turbines. Here in Australia, offshore wind has been a lot slower prospect. But last year, Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, earmarked potential areas for development. Australia trails a number of developed nations in the race to build offshore wind projects. The former government only passed legislation permitting these sorts of facilities last year. And today, the new Labor minister set out six spots they might be built. Offshore wind is jobs rich and energy rich. Waters off the Hunter, the Illawarra, Portland, northern Tasmania and south of Perth are potential sites, while an offshore wind zone near Gippsland is likely to be the first developed. A year later and wind energy is starting to get a greater foothold in communities along the eastern seaboard and many are not happy about it. One, two, three, bugger off, Bowen! The wind farms are going! Bugger off, Bowen! Bugger off, Bowen! Today in Australia Wide, the polarising debate surrounding offshore wind farms in coastal towns in Australia. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk, Country Perth. In remote communities across Australia, debate is raging about whether the proposed voice to Parliament will improve the lives of Indigenous people. Now there's been plenty of discussion in Western Australia's northernmost town, Wyndham, where half the population is Aboriginal. Residents say the economy is stagnant and poverty, alcohol and drug abuse are big problems. But leaders say they're looking to a future beyond what they call government handouts. If the voice does become reality, they say they'll advocate for policies and programmes which make the town more sustainable and a thriving place for the next generation. Ted O'Connor has this story. It's a weekday morning in Wyndham and Aboriginal people are gathering around a table at a local Indigenous corporation. They talk about tough issues in a town where the scars of the stolen generation and segregation run deep. Wyndham is a dying town <laughs> and, and, and literally my people are dying too as well. The conversation moves to the upcoming referendum. For tourism operator and Ballangara man Colin Morgan, the question is not whether his people should have a voice, but how they'll use it. Now the big problem here in Wyndham is, is uh, jobs, work, there's hardly anything. Like everybody moves, there's nothing really happening in the way of businesses and, and jobs and stuff like that. Currently government funded after school activities help steer young people away from trouble. Chief worker Jofran Hunter stirs a meat sauce as she keeps an eye on the young ones playing basketball and foursquare at a local recreation centre. I think it keeps them off the streets. You know, they've got a place to go after school. They've got a place to go at night. They've got a lift home. They get dinner served. Windham Youth Aboriginal Corporation runs these programs, but it believes the bigger picture is job creation. Just down the road, WIAC has been operating a mechanics and maintenance workshop at a loss without government funding for the past six months. Residents say it provides a much-needed service and employs more than a dozen young people. 
who was struggling to find jobs. Some used to be caught up in crime and alcohol abuse. 19-year-old mechanic Aaron Trust says the routine and purpose of employment has changed lives. A lot of young ones tend to start, start on a few things that they shouldn't be doing, just some of the stealing or the bad side of things, stealing and all that. So it's better to get their mind off, mind off those sort of things and get them active in the town and helping out and all that sort of thing. WIAC's boss, Neville De Silva, wants to eventually wean the organisation off government funding and turn it into a sustainable job-creating operation. He hopes the voice will help tailor policies and programs for Wyndham with that goal in mind. Don't just do diversion programs, get the economy running. So my board has made it very clear they do not want handouts. They want these boys and girls, the ladies and gentlemen in this town, to earn their keep. They must come there, do an honest day's work. On the outskirts of Wyndham, in nine-mile indigenous community, rundown infrastructure needs fixing, and houses are often overcrowded. Jean O'Reary grew up in a tent near here. The Narajan woman says there's an opportunity to train up young people to do the work needed to improve the community. Hopefully when the voice gets up, that this day will speak on our behalf to get this place maintained and, you know, running smoothly. Get some things happening for our young people, 18 plus, to get some job out here. It's now Friday at the Recreation Centre. Police officers and other emergency services workers are playing children in basketball. Youth crime is trending down residents say events like this help. Ten-year-old Rahana Morgan watches on. Uh, what I love about here the most is like having fun, playing with the balls and that. And playing with friends. I really like it and like it has very like nice people. Leaders say if the next generation is heard, there's hope for their future. Ted O'Connor reporting there from Wyndham in Northern WA. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. The federal government is pushing to develop offshore wind farms to help reduce the country's carbon emissions. But that's leaving some coastal communities concerned about the potential environmental and social impacts on their town. Newcastle reporter Rami Stevens travelled to a rally in the New South Wales Port Stephens region to hear the concerns of locals. In the coastal town of Nelson Bay, protesters have a message for the country's energy minister, Chris Bowen. They're rallying against one of the federal government's declared offshore wind zones, stretching more than 1,800 kilometres from Newcastle to Port Stephens. Local Gail Nicolosi is among those concerned. They're not farms, they're industrial factories that are going to ruin our lifestyle. This hasn't been enough information given out except for today and just recently and they're charging ahead and doing it without consultation. Frank Future is a tourism operator who has made a living off whale watching tours for almost 30 years. He expects offshore wind to impact the east coast's annual humpback whale migration. It will put an enormous amount of noise into the water. There's going to be a lot of traffic going across the 
Whale Highway during construction processes. They're talking hundreds of these. The Hunter Coast is home to one of two official offshore wind zones in the country. The other is off the coast of South Gippsland in Victoria. The federal government has identified four other regions with the potential for offshore wind, including the New South Wales Illawarra and northern Tasmania. Mr Future says it's not just his region that he's protesting for. The humpback whale migration now is not just Port Stephens, of course. The whole coastline, both east and west and south coast, is now offering whale watching as a very viable thing to do. So we're not just fighting for whales in Port Stephens, it's for the whole coast. Before declaring the Hunter Offshore Wind Zone, the government held a 65-day public consultation period with local communities, First Nations people and businesses. In a statement, Energy Minister Chris Bowen says there'll be further opportunities for consultation. He says licences for projects within the zone will only be issued to applications that comply with strict environmental regulations and deliver meaningful community benefits. Coordinator with the Hunter Jobs Alliance, Justin Page, is welcoming the potential job opportunities. The offshore wind is about a 15-year build project and a 30-year lifespan. So basically they're saying it's equivalent of about 3,000 jobs through the construction phase and then about 1,500 jobs ongoing. He says the timing lines up perfectly as coal mines in the Hunter start to close down. It'll be perfect timing to transition workers out of coal into the new clean technologies. We've been advocating to governments that... We need to plan for a just transition. We need to ensure that workers, the environment, communities aren't left behind. And again, this offshore wind is a perfect opportunity and a project to create massive jobs directly and indirectly and be great for the Hunter economy. People from right across the East Coast attended the weekend's anti-offshore wind rally at Port Stephens. Consultation on turbines potentially being located off the coast of Wollongong on the New South Wales southeast coast has polarised locals. Associate Professor Michelle Voyer from the University of Wollongong says Australia is unique when it comes to the offshore wind challenges it faces. We've got a lot of literature that we can draw on, but obviously we need to apply that in our own setting. We're in a very different environment here in Australia on the East Coast, so it's about taking the lessons learnt from Europe but doing the research, and that's essentially what our position has been in, in from the University of Wollongong is to make the really strong case that we need to be doing really detailed examinations on these particular sites. She says research suggests noise impacts are more likely to impact marine life during construction phases rather than during operation. Particularly for fixed bottom wind farms where there has to be quite heavy duty pile driving to get the turbines into the seafloor. So in both Newcastle and Illawarra we've got proposals for floating offshore wind farms. So these underwater noise constraints are probably going to be less of a concern. That's Associate Professor Michelle Voyer from the University of Wollongong, ending that story from Rami Stevens. The future of Victoria's respected paddock-to-plate industry is in danger after multiple abattoirs have banned the processing of animals for local Victorian farmers. Farmers say they've been given no explanation, but many believe the changes are due to the huge influx of livestock entering the sale yards and abattoirs, causing major delays and staff shortages. But this means that local meat is off the menu at many of the state's restaurants and butchers. Eden Heinlein has this story. It took Drew Simons years to save up enough money to buy his farm in Eddington in central Victoria, where he farms goats, sheep and cattle. 
For the past few years, he's been selling his goat meat to butchers in Sydney and Melbourne, who then supply local restaurants. But that all came to a sudden halt when Hardwick's abattoir in Kyneton stopped taking his goats overnight. Yeah, we can't, we can't get them processed locally and sent to, um, sent to our butcher shops. We'll have to go two and a half, three hours away to get them processed, which is it's unethical on the animal and um, just overnight. And he's not alone. In September, organic producers were also told that their animals would not be accepted at Hardwick's. Mr Simons believes many may now leave the industry. Here we are in central Victoria and there's two abattoirs that will service kill these goats. They, there's 37 or something abattoirs, I think, 37 in Victoria and two of them within, you know, three hours away that'll do it. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. In Barham, on the New South Wales-Victoria border, pig farmer Lauren Mathers recently expanded her business to chickens. But it hasn't been an easy transition. She's been told by her abattoir in Melbourne that in three months' time, they will no longer be able to process her meat chickens. They don't take on any new customers, but we're really lucky to get in there. I know other chicken processors, that, like chicken growers, that can't take their birds there. So I know one producer's actually had to drive to... He's tried New South Wales, South Australia, you know all that driving you're never going to get that return back on the bird i think it's unfair that like small processes like small producers sorry have to go through that i mean we're not feeding the world we're feeding a small part of the population and people that want that sort of ethically homegrown meats they can't access them i think it's continually losing um access to abattoirs um abattoirs closing down and and foreign companies coming in and buying these bigger abattoirs, which is, you know, reducing the amount of processing time and access that we have. So we just, the future's really uncertain. These kinds of decisions are already being felt in the Melbourne restaurant scene. Ben Mitchell, the head chef at Palermo Restaurant in Melbourne CBD, has been serving suckling pig for years. But recently, he had to cross it off the menu. In August, Castle Estate Abattoir in Victoria's southwest stopped processing the state's main supplier of suckling pig. Producers have been unable to process the animal anywhere else in the state. That's a supplier that we've got a really good relationship with. Um, we've been working with them for so long. And not being able to use their products has meant that we're having to find alternatives that we're not really as keen on doing. Um, and as I said, building those relationships is really a key part to running a restaurant and not being able to support them as well as show our customers the best of the produce we've sourced is really disheartening, really. It means it limits our options within our menu offerings and as well as uh, being able to support small local Victorian businesses is, is really important to maintaining a, a good economy of uh, available products. In a response, Castle Estate says it was only temporarily not processing pork and it hopes to find a solution in the coming weeks. Australian Meat Industry Council Chief Executive Patrick Hutchinson says abattoirs do not turn away contracted livestock without good reason. Nationally, uh, we are very much at capacity. Uh, I don't think Victoria is any, in any way, shape or form different to that. Slaughter rates have certainly increased, actually nationally, uh, around, the, around Australia. Uh, and in fact, um, in 2022, we were up 15% on 21, and we're now 15% again above what we were in 2022. So we certainly are, and that's increasing uh, again. Mr Hutchinson says AMIC has been warning about capacity problems for years. Unfortunately, we've found ourselves that the first sign of an El Nino, uh, a warmer winter, and farmers are making some, some pretty fast decisions. 
Agriculture Victoria says it was aware of the challenges faced by some small Victorian producers in accessing abattoirs. And it says that the meat processing sector plays a crucial role in the overall success of Victoria's livestock industry and that it will continue to identify opportunities to support both industries. But Mr Simon says change is needed before many producers leave the industry. PrimeSafe is the regulator for the meat industry. It, uh, it needs to step in and change the licensing conditions of these, uh, of these processes and, and make them then do service kills or a percentage of service kills, say 2 or 3% for their local producers. That was Eddington farmer Drew Simons ending that story there from Eden Heinen. In response, PrimeSafe says it focuses on safety in the industry and it's not its role to change regulation. Hardwicks was also contacted for comment. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. We're going to head to the south coast of WA now where volunteer sea rescue crews are hailing a simple invention as a possible lifesaver for people in trouble in the ocean. The self-propelled and remotely controlled plastic raft can be launched from rescue boats and guided by crews to swimmers, fishers or sailors in distress, enabling them to grab onto the craft and then be brought back to safety. Mark Bennett travelled on Albany's Rescue One vessel to watch the device being put through its paces. The concept and execution of the Dolphin One, a remotely controlled rescue raft, is so simple it's a wonder it hasn't been produced earlier. I'm guessing it's a metre long, it's horseshoe shaped, uh, with twin jet motors on each side, twin batteries, and a very, very simple uh, trigger and dial type uh, remote. Albany Sea Rescue Operations Coordinator Chris Johns is a veteran of numerous rescue missions on WA's treacherous south coast. Even I can use it. It's 13 kilos, so it's, it's no great problem. It's Size won't be prohibitive for us to have it stored and permanently charged on the boat. And how far, what's the range, will, will it be able to operate? Well, it's interesting that the claims they say up to 200 metres, but that's from an elevation where you've got a direct line of sight from the remote to the device. For us, possibly in swell situations where it will lose signal behind waves and what have you, probably 50 to 100 metres. Uh, we're actually further than that today. How many kilos would it be able to support us if you had a couple of people then? The device is 13 kilos itself, but they claim it can carry up to 200 plus kilos of weight. So potentially three people could hang off it. It will certainly float that many people. It's generally one, maybe two people that we're trying to get to, and it will certainly do that. It will certainly float them. It buys that time. Kevin Pinto distributes the Dolphin One. Marine Rescue is one of our biggest customers because they are using it for a certain application where they have to rescue people in a very short notice and the water depths are very shallow to get a big vessel to rescue them. Colin Bairstow is the president of the Albany Sea Rescue Squad. We could have used it a month ago, two months ago, we had an incident where a chap who was on rocks uh, off the south coast where he'd gone in and we couldn't get the boat to him and eventually he had to jump in the water and, and swim out to us, which was very traumatic for him as he'd been on the rock for nearly 40 minutes. Had we've had this device and seen how it performed today, I have no doubts whatsoever it would have been a lot quicker operation, a lot smoother operation, a lot less stress on the... Uh, the um, person in the water. 
and probably on our crew as well. That range there is pretty significant, 200 metre range um, from a small remotely controlled plastic raft. Mark Bennett reporting there from WA's South Coast. ABC Australia Wide. We're going to head to the New South Wales Riverina now where two Indigenous teenagers have been working to correct the misinformation they've been seeing surrounding the voice to Parliament on social media with their high school peers. Our reporter Lucas Forbes caught up with Wagga Wagga twins Seb and Ella McCory. People are scared of what the voice could do, whereas they shouldn't be. If you actually become informed, the voice isn't going to have veto power, like it's not going to impact everyday Australians in the way that many people are scared of. So one of my mates was thinking that if the yes vote gets through, it's going to impact how much he's going to pay in rent and that sort of stuff, which just, it's not true. And it has nothing to do with that. It, it should be showing how passionate the First Nations people are about this voice and how it's going to impact them in the future. My name's Ellen McCurry and I'm from Radri country. My name is Sebastian McCurry and I'm part of the Radri Mob. Um, probably chemistry. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a bit crap, I think. Um, I heard that you for Indigenous twins Seb and Ella McCory, this is a big moment for a few different reasons. They turned 18 this year and will be voting for the first time. And they'll be voting in Australia's first referendum since 1999 to boot. But they're also in year 12, in the middle of their exams, and looking at what comes next in life. So I'd love to use my voice to help other people. So I'd like to go into teaching or that sort of thing. Or even, like, I'd be a part of the community is what I really want to be when I'm older. And, yeah, I just want to help people with my voice. And, yeah, I love talking, so I think that would be pretty fun. I'm hoping to take a gap year after I finish my exams next year and I want to make sure I join ACG in Lancaster and that sort of thing, make sure I'm staying involved in my community. And after that I want to go to uni to either study psychology or teaching. And I'm hoping that with either one of those degrees I can... I'm really interested in supporting my community, so I'm hoping that I could go to remote communities to teach or to practice psychology there. But before they can get to any of that, there's the question of the voice to parliament. They're both yes voters and noticed a lot of misinformation about the voice coming from their peers and from social media. I think the disinformation and the like the stuff that the no campaign is using is really impacting the younger people because it is it's on the TikTok, the Facebook and it's very no heavy um, and that's where all the young people are getting their information from and it's, you can find the yes argument um, and the videos and stuff they make are absolutely awesome it explains it very well and it's very clear but it's just harder to find than the no stuff and the misinformation that they're using is just it's just it's annoying. Like, you talk to your friends about it and they say all these things that you know aren't right, but they've heard it through TikTok and fake news and all that sort of stuff. It's very disappointing. did write a letter. It was um, written by one of our non-Indigenous SRC members, so it was really awesome to see that non-Indigenous people were just as involved and interested in this campaign. But it was addressed to Year 12 parents because we are the ones that are going to be voting for the first time this year. But it was available to all parents, it was put into the newsletter, so anyone in the school community, parents, teachers, staff, that sort of thing, and students could read it. The feedback I have received is that not many people did read it. Only people that were already um, interested in it, who actively wanted to know more, which is unfortunately quite a small um, proportion of people, and people who had already decided that they wanted to vote yes read it. Um, but it was really valuable to read it. it, it wasn't a, this is what you should vote, it was providing genuinely useful information and easy answers for people who wanted to know a little bit more. Despite the misinformation 
and the deflating response to their SRC's letter, they're both still excited to be starting their careers as voters on a referendum specifically relating to Indigenous people. I love using my voice. Uh, I talk a lot. And I feel like that this opportunity to pass the vote is like an absolutely awesome thing. It might be something I can do in my future as to work a part of that voice. And I just feel like if it goes um, like it doesn't get yes, then it's going to be a big missed opportunity for us. I'm really, really excited. I've always been quite interested in elections and that sort of thing. And this one is particularly such a big deal to me because obviously I'm an Indigenous person. I think it's going to make such a big impact on um, Indigenous people like myself and others. So I'm really, really excited to be voting in the referendum and I feel like I've been so informed about a lot of elections leading up to today and this is the first time that I can actually use my um, information to cast a vote. Ella McCorry ending that story there from Lucas Forbes in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. And that is Australia Wide for this Monday. Remember, you can podcast Australia Wide whenever you want to. Just head to the ABC Listen app and you will find us there. And while you're there, why not hit subscribe? I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.